We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How are you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are things? I'm fine. I'm fine. No colon cleansing stories for you this week. Hey, are you sure? I mean, maybe there's some stuff that you didn't tell last time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would be like me to be like, oh, another thing about my asshole. Let me tell Something you about Something I no. left out last time. Uh, readers were obviously clamoring to know. <laughs> Well, what yeah, kind of was, camera model I had up there? Yep, yeah, yeah. I was like, I, I told, uh, I told Barry, I was like, well, I'm gonna be out a couple of days getting a colonoscopy, and uh, but I'll definitely write about it. Don't you worry. And he was like, great, that's <laughs> wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Hey, that's we have to, uh, we have having to, to make him ask. We have, to cut to the, we have to cut to the chase because this is an action podcast, Roth. Wow. <laughs> well, I think there's something the that could action. be done here. I don't want to rush you through this, but I feel like there's a camera up your butt, filmmaking segue that you could maybe attempt here if you wanted to do it. That's true. It's true. We're talking about very, very precise, exciting filmmaking. And what better movie to contain all of those multitudes than Mad Max Fury Road? And our guest this week is Kyle Buchanan, New York Times reporter, uh, columnist. He, he does the projectionist column for the, New, for the New York Times, too. And he's the author of Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road. So we have a Mad Max cast this week, Roth. Hi, Kyle. How are you? Hey. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. You know, filmmaking is very uh, up your own ass discipline. So yeah, <laughs> it's well done. Camera up there. It's 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 very on theme. Look, if Drew wasn't going to do the segue, I'm glad you did. <laughs> Thanks very much. At least somebody cares about whether this podcast comes out good or not. Well, you know, it's funny because, um, and we'll we'll talk about the book uh, in a second because uh, I I read it and Roth's reading it and it's it's fucking fantastic. You, you yeah, can read it. It's a delight. You can read it in one sitting. And the second, in fact, uh, like we get publicist emails saying like, hey, you're interested in this book. And generally, and I don't mean to knock on publicists, but like it, it feels like junk mail at times. No, I, got, I get them too. I, I got a PR email saying, hey, would you like to read the oral history of Fury Road? And I said, fuck yeah, I would. <laughs> Hell yeah, I would. So when it came, I started reading it right away. And it's actually, it's a very inspiring, it's an oddly inspiring book because we're talking about a film that... It, you know, from its ideation to its completion took, you know, you know, the better part of two decades. And it was the vision of one man, George Miller. And, you know, I go back and forth between, you know, whether or not we give directors, you know, particularly independent directors, a bit too much, uh, I don't, you know, I always feel like directors get a little bit too up their own ass, you know, to stay hey, with the Hey, call back. Bring it back. And, yeah. uh, you know, they're realizing a vision and your enjoyment of the movie, you know, if, if, if it's a movie where the director has final cut and real, uh, you know, can assert real dominance over, over the story and how it looks in the edit and has final cut, that you are at the mercy of whether or not this person's precise vision is intriguing or if it's a self-indulgent sack of shit. And Fury Road is the awesomest movie ever made. So like this was the this is the byproduct of one man's vision being and people while they were making it, the people who were involved, the cast and crew, weren't really certain of his vision. Is that right, Kyle? Oh yeah, completely. I, I, you know, I understand exactly what you're talking about. That whole thing of like a tour theory or a so-and-so film, a George Miller film. Correct. You think to yourself, okay, well, you know, is that really one guy? There are so many people who work on a movie, and certainly with Mad Max Fury Road, you know, you watch that end credit scroll, and it is lengthy. And <laughs> I talked to a ton yeah. of those people, and listen, they had a lot of influence on this movie, from you know the lowliest set PA to the biggest top built actor. And George Miller is the type of visionary who really likes to find people who have their own visions and say, okay, so what can you bring to me? If I give you all this freedom to run, what can you do to make it your own and to make it feel like it's real in ways that maybe even I couldn't imagine? But at the same time, yeah, the fact that this movie took two decades, really, to get off the ground was shut down countless times. Uh, all this real act of God shit kept happening that was like, okay, the fate does not want you to make this movie. Uh, we'll even <laughs> fuck with your heart because he had to get heart stents yeah. right before they were about to actually shoot it. That's the sort of thing where you're like, <laughs> no, okay. How many sidewalk cracks did I step on? Uh, what kind of like karmic shit am I having to deal with to make this film? And it wasn't easy even once they started making it. So I do hope that it is kind of inspiring because even while I was writing it, I just thought to myself, how do you not give up? How do you not lose faith 
in your vision. Because if after 20 years, people are telling you, don't make this, you can't make this, it's not possible, we don't have confidence in you, where does that come from for you to say, no, I can do it, and it's going to be a masterpiece? Can it be ego? I think it can be ego. I think it also can be kind of blinders. I think that if you're a director, you're probably animated by one of those two things. You know, either your complete confidence in your own overwhelming ability or just your your incredible ability to block out everything that isn't the movie. And I know that in George's case, it's the latter. You know, he really isn't an egotist. Like, you know, if, if I was like, draw Michael Bay to somebody who had just watched a Michael Bay film, they would <laughs> yeah. accurately draw Michael Bay. Like, if anything, <laughs> the hair wouldn't be long enough. Right. But yeah, yeah the vibe is right there. <laughs> Every story I've heard about Michael Bay, like... You know, that he tried to pick up this girl I know in a tanning salon by grabbing a magazine off the counter, opening it to a profile of him and saying, that's me. Did he Very on point. Very Michael Bay. But George Miller, you know, people like to laugh at the idea that the guy who made Fury Road also did Happy Feet and Babe, but he's way closer to the guy you would draw who directed Happy Feet and Babe. He's like the nicest, most, you know... Uh, physically unpossessing guy. He's just like, you know, short, looks like a grandpa, has the most mild Australian voice. But he has this incredible will and this, yeah, this vision that is also just very circumscribed. He sees it in his head and he doesn't see anything else, you know? And I think you really have got to have that because there was so much going on Things that were sometimes even going haywire that maybe he should have paid a little bit more attention to. But that sort of narrow, overwhelming focus on that thing that is in the center of his eye is probably the only thing that would have compelled him to see this movie through. Well, yeah, as go- somebody who's oh, been sorry. a fan of his for you know for all of his films, that like this book goes a long way towards answering the question that you sort of mentioned in there, which has never been like resolvable, even as somebody who like I think Babe Two Pig in the City is a fucking incredible movie. Yeah. It's like and but it almost was a career ender for him here. But like that idea of the same guy making these incredibly different movies, often, you know, many years apart from each other, is like it seemed unsolvable and yet like I think it kind of emerges in the book. I mean through the way that other people talk about him in terms of like what you were just saying, this like being of incredibly singular focus and also of those like sort of those discrete lines that like if he's working on one story, that's the story he cares about. And he's able to like, it doesn't matter if it's Happy Feet or Mad Max or whatever. He's like able to commit to it in that way. The fact that he was planning on, this is the detail that, because he does come off as a pretty normal guy for someone that's done what he's done. The fact that he was planning and somehow had gotten the studio to sign off on him shooting Fury Road during the day and then making Happy Feet 2 at the same time at night (laughs) is a nice reminder of, first of all, I guess, what studios can be convinced to do and what they can't be convinced to do. I I mean, it's truly wild. Making Fury Road practically killed him and a bunch of other people. So if he were making another movie at night... You know, that's the thing where you kind of do have sympathy for the bean counters at the studios or the people who do have to say no sometimes. I mean, you know, in large part when you're reading this, they're going to kind of come off as the villain because they're getting in the way of what you know to be a masterpiece. But if you were the guy in charge of those purse strings and George Miller is telling you, oh, yeah, no problem. I can do Fury Road during the day and Happy Feet at night. Wouldn't you say, "Okay, this guy might actually be a lunatic if he thinks he can pull that off? Is he really going to be able to pull off all the, all the other things that he's telling us? You have to somehow parse uh, these uh, crazy, fantastical things you're saying are doable and these ones aren't. And, you know, it's, it's easy for a lot of people to kind of get lost or, or to lose faith when you're, you're getting proposals that are that extreme. Yeah. Well, let's talk, about, let's talk about how he did it. Because um, we're talking about it sort of in, in macro, but let's talk about the, the, you know, sort of the brass tacks of how it was made. Um, I want to talk about the screenplay uh, to start off with, because there is no screenplay. There was no screenplay to Fury Road. It was written and composed entirely on storyboards, like extremely detailed storyboards that Miller and uh, a couple of other writers put on walls, like in an office somewhere. Um, Did you have access to these storyboards when you wrote the book? Were you able to see any of them? 
Yeah, they. Uh, I got sent a PDF that is basically the storyboards. Um, oh shit! And then also kind of a hybrid one of the storyboards with some stage directions added, which is really incredible. I also got sent a storyboard of Eminem as Mad Max when they were yeah. flirting with oh, the idea right. of casting him. So the yeah, the, so funny. The illustrator being like, "Yeah, I had to draw some blonde hair on the guy." That yeah, was weird. Max, Max has a hood <laughs> ornament with blonde hair, uh, Eminem. Um, so yeah, and the, the storyboards are really incredible. The art is all really incredible. And, you know, these were produced almost all entirely like around, you know, it, it, the latter half of the 20th century, like 97, 98, 99 is when they started illustrating this thing. And it's astonishing when you go back and you look at those storyboards, how basically like almost shot for shot, some of those key sequences in the movie were already laid out for, you know, 15 years before this film came out and had been playing probably in a fucking loop in George Miller's head for that long. And, you know, if he was seeing those shots of the movie, if he did see that edited sequence in his head, then you you do understand maybe what else was compelling him because he knew it worked. He knew it was great, you know. But all the other people who looked at those storyboards, you know, even including, you know, John Seal, the cinematographer, or a lot of the actors were like, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> What's this yeah. even going to be? You know, and when he shot the film as though he was shooting storyboards, that was the tricky part because he's not shooting these full scenes where the actors can kind of like get the material on their feet and you know, arc their characters through like two or three minutes. He would just literally, George Miller would literally just be like, Charlize, I need you to turn to the left and put your hand on the steering wheel. Just like a microsecond of something. And she would say, okay, so what's the sequence? What is this for? What am I thinking? What am I doing? Those things were maybe a little less important. He knew that he only needed that little bit and everybody else was thinking to themselves, okay, so what if it just doesn't cut together, you know? I mean, Marvel superhero movies are made by and large like in a total kind of coveragey way where you just shoot it from a bunch of angles and you put it together, you know, the end and, you know, select the best takes and that's the, the fucking scene. And George Miller's like, no, I know extremely precisely that shot. And that could be a really alienating thing for his actors, but you can't quibble with the fact that it worked. Uh, that is on him, but it's also on people like Charlie's who felt something so sort of bone deep in their preparation for that character that she could return to it when she didn't know what the fuck else she was doing. She knew how to get to Furiosa. Uh, you've mentioned Marvel movies tonight. I noticed uh, while I was watching, like I think it was Hawkeye, that, that they have given uh, Marvel Studio Chief Kevin uh, Thage. Feige. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Feige, you can cut the mispronunciation. You just assumed it rhymed with beige. <laughs> you get a Kevin Feige beige, production like before you watch it. And it's like, oh, all right. So he's like, he gets the possessory credit over a director now. You don't even know who the fuck directed the episode half the time. Anyway. Well, yeah. And I mean, like, listen, Kevin Feige, obviously one of the top executives in Hollywood and a, a real true creative mind. But not, not all executives are creative minds. I would venture to say, like, most of them aren't. And most of the franchise movies that we see are shepherded by executives, you know, yes, who are concerned about studio payroll and not directors. The executives are the ones calling the shots. So to have something like have to have somebody like George Miller in charge is a very bracing thing for executives who are like, wait, no, the the person in charge is me. You're the guy that we're hiring. Yeah, that's one of the wild little near misses from the the sort of the first third of the book is about the you know the pre-production of it like from the storyboards in 1998 in the office up to like welding together the war machine cars and like a weird factory and stuff but there's something one of the weird near misses in there is that miller was like he was attached to a marvel product in the pre feige era when they were like giving the projects to like ang lee and be like all right if you got anything to say about the incredible hulk like have at it or whatever so there was like a was it like George Miller's Justice League or yeah, something like so that? Yeah, so he was yeah, it was it was DC and he was going to make Justice DC, League, right? you know, uh well before Zack Snyder got his mitts on it. Wow, at least the Miller cut. It was going to have yeah. yeah, seriously. I mean, they got that close to shooting. Army Hammer was going to play Batman. Adam Terrific. Brody was the Flash. Um Oh, he'd have been good. Uh, it, it was it was a an eclectic group of people. Um and it fell through 
you know, because of Australian tax credits and writer strikes. And also just the fact that if you were George Miller and you were making a really crazy, expensive blockbuster movie, nine times out of ten, it's going to fall through. I mean, Fury Road, nine times out of ten, fell through. You know, it's just that the tenth time it actually took and it barely took at that, you know. I mean, one of the fun things of writing this book was to go pretty deep on the version that almost shot in 2003, you know, 2003, ages ago, it was supposed to star Mel Gibson. The whole idea was it was kind of his last hurrah that he was going to be, you know, a grizzled, feral Max uh, that's kind of like redeemed by his association with Furiosa and these wives and came so close to shooting and again, fell apart at the last minute. Uh, Everybody who worked on that movie, aside from George Miller, was like, all right, fuck, well, I guess we had our shot, but this is never going to happen anymore. Um, so yeah, it's just crazy to for him to have kept that flame alive and said, okay, no, it can be reconfigured. And instead of sending out uh, an, an older Mad Max, it can debut a younger one. I remember you noted in the, in the New York Times, because the book uh, came out of a... a a smaller oral history you did about the film for the New York Times. Is that right, correct? for the fifth anniversary. And in that oral history, you were kind of at a time when one of the production designers said, this was in like 2003, it was after 9-11, that Mel Gibson's wife had emailed that production designer concerned about how many Muslims may or may not be in Namibia during the production, <laughs> right? It was right after 9-11. So like it turned out that Mel Gibson's wife is not, uh, not that far from Mel Gibson in terms of uh, ideology and temperament. Yeah, that that quote made the New York Times oral history and not the book oral history because Times lawyers are more confident than book lawyers. Oh, (laughs) that's great. That's great. The other thing is that uh, I just want to go back to Eminem because one of the great details was that Eminem was... was, They they thought about Eminem for the role, but Eminem... Didn't want, uh, didn't want to do it if the film was not going to be shot in Michigan. So I kept thinking <laughs> about Mad Max Fury Road taking place in fucking Ypsilanti. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, over the years, he was offered a lot of really big movies, and that was always his stipulation. He's like, I'll do it if you go to Michigan, which was apparently a bridge too far for most Hollywood productions. Um, he could have had, like, a really major movie career, and these movies would have been way different. But he just was like, no, if you don't meet me where I live, literally then I'm not going to do it. Uh, it's more than 80 miles from a Coney Island dog. Right. I simply cannot be bothered. Uh, now, uh, the man who actually did get cast uh, was Tom Hardy, who was uh, ended up being fantastic in the role, but was a complete pain in the ass. And I want to go through some of the details of the production yeah. with him, some of the difficulties. But how was it for you to sit with Tom Hardy, among other members of the cast and crew, when you wrote the book? You know... The the actual process of writing the book, I interviewed him via email, but I have interviewed him in person a couple times, and he is as wild and wiggly in person as he some as he often, almost always, comes off on screen. I remember, I think the very first time I ever sat down with him was for the movie Lawless, where uh, I think the movie where he got into a fistfight with Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, um, I remember that one. And the intention was to ask him about that. What he wanted to do was talk about China for no real reason. He just would throw out things like, Kyle, how well do you know Mandarin? And I'd say, (laughs) not at all, Tom Hardy. Why? And he's like, well, you're going to have to fucking learn because they're taking us over. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. And uh, what about Shia? (laughs) Um, You know, he just has these really garrulous, crazy trains of thought, and he will take them wherever those train tracks lead. So it's an interesting thing trying to corral him as an interviewer, and it gives me a little bit of insight, I think, into what it's like to try to corral him as a director and also as an editor. I mean, I talked to Margaret Sixel, who edited the film. She's also George Miller's wife. And she was really candid about, you know, she was getting sent all these takes, and he is so wildly different in all of them. Sometimes he's doing, you know, Wiley E. Coyote Looney Tunes shit. And then sometimes he stumbles into the thing that makes it into the movie. That's very much intentionally his process. I think a lot of directors are overwhelmed by that. He calls it trying to sort of like fail towards the truth by doing like all the wrong things until he stumbles into the right thing. But I think for a lot of people who work with him, 
that's not an approach that engenders a lot of confidence that you know what you're doing. Um, probably also doesn't fucking help that he can be a contentious person, that he can be method, that he does not usually come out on of his trailer on time. Oh, you know, especially for somebody like Charlize, who's very by the book, who shows up exactly when she's supposed to, who can, you know, cry from her left eye if you want her to cry from her left eye and do it as many times as she's told. You know, that is a real clash of personalities. Um, when uh, Hardy was giving you China takes when you were interviewing him, did you sense... <laughs> that he naturally had these digressions or that he was testing you in some way, that this was a deliberate, almost like an act. I think, I think natural, but I think also he is kind of curious about who you are and if you can withstand him. Um, the second time I interviewed him, which was for Fury Road in person, I remember walking up and he takes a look at me. I think my hat said snake on it. And he's like, Mate, let me buy that hat off you. That was the very first thing that he said. And <laughs> I said, I said, it's my hat. I can tell you where to get it. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to sell my hat. I had hat hair that day. I'm not going to interview him with hat hair. <laughs> you know, I got curly hair. Once this hat comes on, it's not coming off until I'm in <laughs> the privacy of my own home. Um, so I think if I, uh, but I also think if I'd sold that hat to him, if I just immediately caved and capitulated, it would have been like, you know, not the right vibe. And yeah, I that was like think, a jailhouse power move. He's like, what size shoe do you wear? Right, like, right, very that. Um, right. So yeah, I, I do think that to some extent, he is always, as an actor and as a person, trying to test kind of what he can get away with. And listen, when you're a really good-looking, famous, uh, talented guy, they let you get away with a whole lot of things. Well, speaking of that, um, I want to get into the relationship between Hardy and Charlize Theron during the film, because that's our, it's been covered that they they didn't like one. They fucking hated each other. Oh, yeah. And at one point in the book, um, Theron told you, quote, I didn't feel safe on set because she thought Hardy was volatile and she thought producer Doug Mitchell was more or less looking the other way. And you mentioned one example of Hardy being belligerent on the set or being very contentious, but did you think that there were other incidents on the set that Theron either didn't tell you about or told you about off the record that made her feel so unsafe? I know that things were not great verbally between the two of them throughout. Um, I had heard a little bit about a fight rehearsal that maybe there were some, you know, accidental accidental punches that landed that maybe didn't endear uh, anybody to anybody. Um, but yeah, I think the real big blow up was this day in the war rig where Charlize showed up on time sat there in the war rig in full costume and, and makeup, you know, ready to shoot and sat there for hours waiting for Tom Hardy to show up. Even when the crew was like, Charlize, you know, you can come out. We'll get you an umbrella, get you some food, some catering. You don't have to sit in the, in the car. She sat there to prove that point. You know, she sat there to prove like, hey, I am actually here doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And the guy who's costing us a lot of time and a lot of money and, you know, and my respect is not here. Um, and when he came to set that day, you know, she had hit her breaking point and leaped out of the car and, and started really getting in his face and he and hers. And, you know, it, it was a real conflagration that caused, uh, <laughs> they had to send uh, this producer, Denise DeNovi down uh, to kind of try to mediate things um, and, and really was, a difficult thing for Charlize. I, I wonder now, um, you know, with like a little bit more clarity uh, for a lot of men who, who do this sort of thing, uh, if they would give a little bit more credence to Charlize, the female lead of the movie, saying like, listen, I don't feel safe in this environment and something should be done about it. Um, you know, I think Doug Mitchell, who produced the film, is a very tenacious guy. George Miller calls him the honey badger. Uh, and he was very tenaciously protecting George's vision. So the presence of another producer there, I don't know that they really incorporated that as something that would appease Charlize and more treated it as something that would potentially threaten what they were trying to do as a film. And I think that you can do both, but when you have those blinders on, as these men definitely did, um, you're maybe not seeing that whole big picture. 
Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the distance that Miller seems like he has from the actual... I mean, like, I guess you have to because it is, like, it's a vision thing, so you need to sort of hover at 30,000 feet, I guess, to see all of it. But seeing that's part of the the book that I found fascinating was the extent to which he's, like, delegating stuff that I think of as, like, a lay idiot watching movies as, like, really integral directorial stuff that there's, like, there's a dramaturge, there's, like, an animator, like, beyond, like, sort of the... Like, the stuff that involves people is, like, it's not necessarily him. Like, there's, like, other people that are sort of, hang, you know, hanging on to that role and doing it as, like, on his behalf. He's well, but Ralph, it's strange, because it seems like it's a fun way to make a movie right up until it seems like a miserable way to make a movie. Well, like, at the beginning, I mean, everybody's got all this agency, and then once yeah. you're doing it, you're just out there. I, I talk to people, and they are so intriguingly split down the middle who worked on this movie you know, half of the people said this was the most creatively fulfilling experience of my life. And half of the people were like, I watched it once and I can't watch it again because it brings back too many of the sort of, you know, uh, traumatic memories of, of having to make this thing and having to do it under, you know, such extreme conditions and duress. Um, it is interesting, though. Yeah, I mean, again, a thing that complicates the auteur theory a little bit is that he really did trust so many people, whether it was, you know, the the dramaturge Nadia Townsend who like coached all the stuntmen and made them become war boys and and you know they all named themselves and they all lived as those war boys for months in Swakopmund where they shot you know or Eve Ensler uh, who wrote the vagina monologues and comes in and coaches the actresses who played the wives and teaches them about sex slavery and has them unpack memories and trauma of their own to try to like get in touch with their characters and not just have them be, you know, hot girls in the desert. It's really fascinating the degree to which Miller trusts people to do that. Because I think, you know, as a, as a guy who was a doctor before he became a filmmaker, That's right. he's fascinated by people. He has compassion for people and for human lives and maybe recognizes that his weakness is just communicating with people. The best one-to-one -one way that George Miller has to communicate with people is making a movie and having you watch it. But that intermediary thing of having the people who can like really speak empathetically and talk to a lot of these performers in the way that they kind of need to be talked to, you know, that falls to other people. A actors on set, they don't just need a director. They need a psychiatrist. They need to be like, you know... Uh, sometimes coddled, often reassured. You need to have that temperament. Otherwise, they can become frustrated, they can become ornery, and, and things can get tense. It's especially true if you stick them in a desert for 11 months. That right. assuming too. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. They can't just, you know, it, it's not in LA. They're not doing a soundstage and then going to Nobu, uh, yeah. you know, or partying on the weekends. They've All they've got is each other. And if there's tension in the ranks, then having just having each other is not necessarily a good thing. Well, also, it's a matter of scale, right? Because we're not talking about Vanya on 42nd Street. This is a massive production that has thousands of people working on it. And so when you're the director, you know, it's very, very hard to have one-on-one -on -one relationships with people because you are managing, essentially, a, a multi-million dollar business that popped up overnight and is going to fuck off in, like, a, a few months. So... You know, I, I feel like that it's it's a whole different job for someone like George Miller or James Cameron or Catherine Bigelow who are directing really, really immense productions as opposed to, you know, very, very small scale, more intimate films. Mm -hmm. And so that makes the job a lot more difficult. And some, I would assume some directors think it's a waste of their time to deal with those issues and would rather delegate it. And then there are directors who maybe can do everything at once, but I don't, I don't know who has the capacity to do that. Well, one, I do think Vanya on 42nd Street would be improved by a guitar that shoots flames. And two, <laughs> <That's right>. uh, <laughs> I think George Miller does know that about himself. The third Mad Max movie, Beyond Thunderdome, he co-directed it with this guy, George Ogilvie. And basically, Miller conceived and shot all the action, and Ogilvie did the rest, you know, the actor shit. Um... A lot of that was because his producing partner at the time, Miller's producing partner, Byron Kennedy, had, had just died in a freak accident 
not long before they shot. It was a pretty devastating thing. He didn't think he could take on the whole thing. But I think it's also maybe a tacit acknowledgement of what Miller is best at, even though he has made very human films. And, you know, they're not all outrageous. You, he's made a, you know, Lorenzo's Oil, uh, for example, with Susan Sarandon and Nick Nolte, which is right. a medical drama. You know, it's shot. Uh, he, he shoots the hell out of that movie. But at the same time, the stakes are very intimate and very human. Um, it's a fascinating thing. A- among blockbuster action directors, he is so concerned with humanity and the, the philosophy that underpins everything that we do. And when you hear him talk about it, it sounds like you're talking to your favorite professor. But sometimes actors don't want to talk to a professor. Sometimes actors don't want somebody who's going to give them 30 minutes of preamble about, you know, the uh, the cultural underpinnings of the choice they're making. They just want to know, why am I putting my hand on the steering wheel? Yeah, what am I supposed to be feeling? Yeah. Like, and don't start at the dawn of time. Like, yeah. do not give me Terrence Malick's <laughs> dinosaurs here. Like, just <laughs> tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. because you just waited in a war rig for four hours for fucking Tom Hardy to show up. Yeah. That's part of Tom's process. Like, yeah, it's a fucking hard job. It's not, <laughs> it's not easy. You need someone to, like, at least acknowledge that you're going through a bunch of bullshit. It was a lot of very, very, very different processes. <laughs> that That is clear. And, and I do think that's one of the advantages of telling this in an oral history format because you get a sense of all those different personalities and what people uh, cared about and were trying to accomplish and how that might have rubbed up against other people who were doing things differently. Uh, the, uh, you mentioned the guitar, and I, lo- I fucking love the Doof Warrior playing the guitar yeah. with the guitar shoots flames. And the guy who played the Doof Warrior told you for the book that it was the worst guitar he had ever played in his life. <laughs> He's like 80 pounds, and like it's, it's mostly a toilet. heavy. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of crazy thing because, you know, that had to actually work. Not just the shooting flames part, which a lot of other movies would just, you know, use CGI to do. But once they built it, and once it did shoot flames, and once it looked cool as shit... George Miller came around to look at it, and he's like, okay, but does this actually play music? (laughs) Like, if he's on set, will it actually be playing music? And they had to retrofit it to play music. And he wasn't just playing it in those scenes. He would be playing speed metal riffs in the morning when everybody was getting to set to get them all hyped and amped up. So, like, you know, it's fascinating for me, and, and, and advantageous probably as an author, because the themes, ideas, characters, and world of the movie truly, truly, truly bled into the real lives of the people who worked on it. You know, if you're getting to set in the Diff Warriors there with his fucking flaming guitar and he's playing metal, you are in the world of the wasteland. You are not on a normal set. That moment where where Miller inspects the guitar and is like, terrific, awesome. I like how the it looks like intestines. Uh, can you play on it? Like, it's such a... <laughs> like, I was hooting at that just as like... Because all the, the guys that in Australia are like soldering shit together and like going to the junkyard and like building things. That seems like one of the, it's not me at all, but that seems like one of the coolest jobs that anybody could have. Like, and just having your boss show up and be like, it looks awesome. Like make it work for me. Thanks. I'll be back in 45 minutes. It's just like such a nightmare scenario that I was laughing at. Well, well, also making sure that the, that the guitar can actually play is something that I would forget. And then if he told me, like, oh, can it play guitar? I'd be like, oh, fuck. Like, I forgot about that. But I yeah, missed the exactly. most important part of the guitar. No, it was, you know, it was like, uh, you know, when a reality competition show does like the unconventional materials challenge, that's yeah. what it was like building not just the cars, but all those props. Like they had a junkyard in the back and every day the most random shit would show up there like slaughterhouse equipment or porcelain toilet seats, like things that you would stumble across in a post-apocalyptic world and say, is this valuable to me? Can I do something with it? And what Miller and and Colin Gibson, the production designer, would sort of task all these prop makers with is like not just making something out of it, but having it actually work for real and coming up with all sorts of different ways that it could be used. You know, if you make a guitar like that, well, can it shoot flames? Can it actually play? And can you (laughs) use it as a weapon if you need to? Which they end up doing in the movie, you know? Everything had to have all these multiple uses because the idea was if you're carrying something around in the wasteland, like you're not just going to carry it around, you know, because it does one thing. You're, you're going to sort of reserve those limited spaces on, on your physical person for shit that like you can be using uh, to kill people with or to inspire them. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break and come back. We have more questions for uh, Kyle Buchanan. We'll be right back. 
We're back with Kyle Buchanan. We were just talking about everything, um, all the props uh, and all the set, all the production design in Fury Road and how there had to be a story behind pretty much every object in there. And that's the sort of detail that I just, like, I watch other movies now and I'm like, well, they didn't, there's no story behind that coffee cup they're drinking out of. That's no good. They didn't do the work. So, and like, it's in, it's an inspiring book to understand how much thought and care went into this movie, but also like it's intimidating because it's like okay, well now I'm gonna go write a book. Oh God, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go like learn how to I'm gonna have to go like learn how to be a mechanic or something like that. Like so that yeah. I I will actually know what the fuck I'm talking about. So it's like it's this odd pull where it's like it's it's daunting. Like I don't want to do as much work as George Miller just had to do. You know. No, I mean, and, and a, a kind of revealing thing, because a lot of the people who make our biggest action movies, or, or certainly a lot of superhero movies, are people who just kind of previously made some Sundance indie that was a little promising, and then suddenly they're, you know, in charge of a $150 million movie, where maybe they don't know how any of this action or cinematography or special effects work, and they're learning it on the fly. Meanwhile, you have people like George Miller, who know all of these things innately, and are tasking other people with coming up with these incredibly involved backstories or directors like James Cameron, who could probably do absolutely every single job on that set and builds cameras and submarines to get the shots that he wants. I mean, Miller yeah, he's was like doing inventing it shit right. you know, at one, at one point when they were going to shoot it 3d natively, instead of actually taking the 3d cameras that were available, he was building his own, you know, there are just some people who are that suited for things. And, it probably also helped that if there was any upside to this thing dragging out for so long, it's that absolutely every single element of it, from the smallest to the biggest elements, were utterly thought through. And you feel it when you watch the movie. Some things just pass by in a flash, but you sense that there is sort of like uh, a world that exists beyond the borders that is completely thought through, and that's what's so you know, beguiling about it. You're curious about this world and these people and what they're wearing and what they're driving. And and it's fun for me as an author to get to hear the stories, not just behind how those things were made, but how they were conceived. You know, what was the idea of how the characters would have built these things? Because there are great stories about those things. Yeah. I After I read the book, I was like, you know what? My, my nine-year-old... You know, he's into action movies and Marvel and stuff. I was like, you want to see a real movie? Like, let's let's do it. Let's watch Fury Road. He's like, all right. And, uh, and he watches like five minutes of it. And like when when the war boys try to brand uh, Tom Hardy, like in the beginning, he's like, okay, I'm out. Uh, it's too, <laughs> too much. It's yeah, intense. It's too much. It's, it was way too it intense. Is. But then like five minutes later, he, like, he was talking about the opening narration. Like it yeah. stuck with him. Like you could tell like he knew like – he knew it was the real shit, but he wasn't quite ready for it, which was fine. But he knew what he was dealing with, even though he had just seen five minutes of it. I have three more questions about the production um, or about the book before we, we get into all the all the dopey stuff that we usually do. Uh, I want to go back to the um, the fracas between Theron and Hardy, where Theron told you she did not feel safe on set. And when, in response to that, Hardy told you... He said, I don't see why she would ever be intimidated by me or in any way feel frightened. I think that was more bollocks. How did you feel when Hardy told you that? I think I think that what went down sits differently in everybody's memory. I think that Tom Hardy feels some culpability now in the way he made everybody feel. Um he started feeling and acknowledging that when the movie debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. There was a really remarkable moment at the press conference where he had just watched the movie and he got it. He got it in a way that he had not gotten it. And, you know, he didn't just put Charlize through hell. He put George Miller through hell. And so he apologized to George at that press conference because, you know, he was such a pain in the ass to deal with sometimes so unwilling to do what was asked of him that there was even a moment uh, that uh, the first assistant director or, or the the uh, cameraman recalls to me where at one point George kind of walks away from dealing with Tom Hardy and kind of openly muses what it would have been like if Heath Ledger was still alive and in that role, you know? So I think for Tom to acknowledge his bad behavior... There's certain things that he knows he did. Um, 
But I don't know. How much self-awareness do you ascribe to Hollywood stars? They've got some. Some have more than not, others. Um, no, not, not a ton. But, you know, it tends as, to as, diminish, too, over time. Has Tom Hardy become a punctual by the book person since then? <laughs> no. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, and you sometimes did. that serves his movies well. I mean, the first Venom, when he jumps in that lobster tank, that was a complete wacky improv from him. That was another instance of him trying to like fail towards the truth, and it's probably the best scene in the movie. You know, sometimes, sometimes that sort of overbearing nature can run roughshod over a, a director that doesn't know how to deal with it, or you know, a journalist who's willing to sell his hat. Um, and you got to stand up <laughs> to it. Is he? Uh, you know more about movies and movie making than I do. Uh, is failing towards the truth in the way that he does it, is that like a recognized method or is he just a fucking weird guy? I don't like, think I know most everybody's people... giving directors different options and different looks and stuff, but this sounds way out of bounds with that. To be fair, I don't think most people would have the balls to do it. I think right. if you're going to go on set and you're in front of all those people who know what they're doing and you are making it seem like you don't know what you're doing, that is kind of a ballsy thing. Yeah, um, right. Some people might respect it and some not because it's going to take you some time to get there. But to not be embarrassed to do that, to not be embarrassed to try something really, really wacky um, in a moment that one would think would call for seriousness uh, is e- extreme and not something a lot of actors would do. I think if you were on that $200 million set you would be like, I am prepared as shit. I, I know what I'm doing. You can count on me. Um, his method of preparation involves finding it on the set. And especially when you have a movie where something, where everything is so prescribed that literally it is the culmination of a vision that was realized on storyboards like 15 years before. It's an interesting thing to have somebody who is doing utterly unexpected things within that frame. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes I watch a Wes Anderson movie where things are just as circumscribed, and I think to myself, this needs more life. This needs more yeah, spontaneity. Yeah, you feel claustrophobic this needs, with this it. This needs more actors who are willing to surprise Wes and not give him exactly what he thought he was going to get because that's what makes something feel very alive within his dioramas. Um and I do think that Tom's performance does that. You know, I spoke to, when I spoke to uh, Margaret Sixel, the editor, she went back and she rewatched the movie before uh, the interview. And she's like, you know what? I actually kind of appreciated the, the wild card nature of that performance. It, it only took her a couple years to get over <laughs> what a pain <laughs> in the ass it was to cut. Well, production took so much out of Miller. Um, and he's now 76 years old and he's going to make Furiosa. Yeah, the sequel, and he's going to make it the with Anya Taylor Joy as yeah, yeah. as the as it's the uh, as Furiosa. Furiosa. Yeah. yeah, and I want to ask you: Do you think he can make it without dropping dead? Like, how's he going to do it? <laughs> I hope so. Um, I think there are some advantages this time, even though he is an older person. Um, they're not going out into the deserts of Namibia, as I understand it. It will be shot a lot closer to home in Australia. Mm. Um, I think also there was so much fear and trepidation and resistance from the studio, the actors, so many people about can he land this plane? Does he know what he's doing? Is his vision going to amount to anything and will people connect to it? Or is this going to be like a huge box office flop that tars our careers forever? People know now what he's going to do. I mean, I think like, uh, Fury Road is proof positive uh, that he can deliver. And I think that they will have some wind at their backs when they're making Furiosa that if people start to question or doubt things, they will have that document to look at, one of the best movies of all time, uh, not to mention one of the best action movies, uh, to say, okay, I, I'm placing more trust in you than maybe you got on the set of Fury Road. So maybe it'll be a somewhat easier time for him to have fewer obstacles in his way in that regard, but it just wouldn't be George Miller and it wouldn't be Mad Max if there weren't a fuck ton of obstacles anyway. So, uh, you know, Godspeed to him in dealing with whatever new presents itself. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. like if the if the movie goes smoothly and nothing goes wrong, it might be a worse movie. That's never movie. happened for him. That has yep. never happened. He has never had a movie go smoothly. Last, uh, uh, last Maybe The Road Warrior a little bit, but still. 
Uh, last question about uh, the book and the movie. Steve Mnuchin is a producer on that movie. You did not talk to him for the book. <laughs> He's actually not mentioned in the book at all. Is there a reason for either of those things? I did try to get a hold of him just to see. Um, you know, there are... <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't expect a Trump crony to be uh, on the Fury Road payroll, but um, such is the nature of uh, producing Hollywood movies that you make uh, interesting bedfellows. Um, seeing his name in the credits of a movie it's never a wild fails. Thing, right? Yeah, it's, like a it's weird so jarring. Trump scare in a horror movie. Like you're watching the opening credits of fucking <laughs> like what's the like Suicide Squad? Yeah, because his like, name he is on a name lot on of movies. Um, yeah. But you know, there are there are money producers and then there are creative ones. Um, and even if I couldn't ultimately get him involved uh i really felt like that time was better spent with the people who had to make sometimes often very difficult creative decisions about this movie i mean there's a producer christofaria a really great guy really believed in miller but also when warner brothers was like we want you to take this film away and do your own cut you know a more studio friendly cut that's what he was tasked to do. You know, this was not an easy experience for anybody. Even, you know, some of the true believers on this movie had to sometimes question George's vision on their own or were kind of asked to uh, by the studio. You want to remember a guy, Kyle Buchanan? Yeah. yeah we're going to change gears on you real quick. Would you like to? Uh, your guy of the week. I, th- I, had it, I had him as the guy of the week last week in our the Super Bowl, but we got sidetracked by... Neil Broughton of the Minnesota North Stars. But your guy of the week this week is Dre Bly, former Rams cornerback. You remember him, Kyle Buchanan? I don't remember him. I That's fine. You know, it's fine. <laughs> I, I was hoping, okay, my, my remember a guy base of knowledge is very much uh, concentrated with the L.A. Dodgers. I grew up as a Southern Californian, a huge Dodger Ooh. fan. Like the Kirk Gibson World Series home run is very meaningful to me. So I was hoping, although these might be too big for your remember guys, I was like, maybe we'll get a Mike Piazza in there, maybe a Sosha, Lasorda. Could I interest you in a Todd Hollinsworth? Yeah, what no, can I'll I do take to get you. you into this Todd Hollinsworth? <laughs> That'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. I don't <laughs> mind remembering old Todd. That was when they were just they would win the rookie of the year every year with like some guy that would go on to play like six unremarkable seasons. But it did keep happening. <laughs> Hollinsworth was probably the most unremarkable of those. Uh, we're please gonna do tell fun. me about this guy. Uh, where, oh, uh, Dre Bly? Yeah. Oh, Dre ahead, Bly, Drew. yeah. He was a great cornerback with an incredible name. Just a, fu- a fucking fantastic name. I think he played, I believe he played at uh, North Carolina. And there's something about North Carolina college players who turn pro who are not Mitch Trubisky that always fascinate me. So Dre <laughs> Bly, Lawrence Taylor, guys like that. I'm always, I'm always like, oh, yeah, all right. Is, is there anybody in sports right now that you think has a particularly Mad Max name, like really off the chain, wild and out there? Uh, like their, oh, like their name? Yeah. Like a cool name? It would be, it would be better if there were more, uh, George Miller names and fewer George Lucas names. There's a lot of George <laughs> Lucas names in baseball. Like there was a guy named Jet Bandy for a while. What's like, that? All that like, kind of like terrible. That, like late career, like where George Lucas is just kind of like freewheeling, eating huge meatballs <laughs> for every meal. People are coming in and they're like, we need a Darth name. And he'd be like, Darth, uh. Barficus. I'm not busy right now. I can't talk. There was never like, uh, like the consistency on the Star Wars names was so weird because like they would usually be like you know like Lando and then like Han and stuff like that. But then there'd like be like a Dale and you'd be like, what the fuck is that? Like, what? <laughs> like I just Space saw Jeff. Yeah, all of a sudden yeah. it's like, yeah, well, I'm Carter, and you're like, wait, 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 you're not, you're not part of this universe. You're like, you're, you're from Wisconsin. You got, you got two words. Very Dune, like, where everybody's got these wild, outlandish names, and then the lead character is Paul. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. And then, of course, Duncan Idaho and all that stuff. Hey, uh, Duncan Idaho is a great name. <laughs> yeah. And Duncan Idaho is a name where, like, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that, like, a Duncan Idaho gets taken, like, you know, in the fifth round of the NFL draft this year. And there's, like, exactly. whatever, Mel Kuyper oh, loves his Oh, 100%. Tape. 100%. Like, that name is within the realm of possibility. It's I, not. I have heard that uh, Chris Hemsworth, who's in the Furiosa prequel, is playing the bad guy, and his character's name is Dr. Dementis. Which is such a fucking George Miller. Only you could get away with that shit. I know, and, like, and we'll all love it. Once it's a it's little close to Doctor Demento, isn't it? Yeah, a little, a little too bit, much. But... It is funny that that's like 
that is a flex, like naming a character that. Like that's like oh, yeah. if you didn't if like Fury Road was three percent less good, the studio would shut the whole production down as soon as they saw Doctor Dementis, <laughs> and they'd be right to do it. We're gonna give one. Uh, we're gonna do one fun back question, then we're gonna close out the podcast. This is from Jamoosh, and he writes in, Kyle, have you had a snack food that was in heavy rotation for years, but has now been left on the side of the road? For example, Funyuns and I had a long relationship, but while the good memories still exist, the desire does not. Is there any snacks that you used to be into, Kyle? that you no longer are, that you left behind. A, an extremely valuable part of my daily diet for years were, were um, gas station Slim Jims. Um, oh! I'm talking like the really mammoth ones. I don't want the you thin ones. You get your protein ones. and you get your sodium. Like the one, the one that, like as long as a fucking jump rope, right? Yes, the huge ones. In fact, two separate birthdays, two different people, uh, one of whom was my sister, Got me as a present, like the whole fucking carton <laughs> of Slim Jims. Well, that's but a but the my the one that came from my sister is the one that put me off Slim Jims because it was some kind of crazy spicy ones, and normally I'm great with spice, but I think these were <laughs> I don't know poisoned. Uh, I had the most incredibly awful food poisoning for oh, like no. five days, and I I had eaten them. I had eaten my first one. Knew immediately that I was making a mistake as I ate it, but kept doing it because I'm me. Um, <laughs> and this was the day before I went to New Orleans. So the whole time I was in New Orleans, did I get to enjoy all the fucking great food and great alcohol? No, it was water and saltines the whole time because of those. Because limbs. you ate like a, some sort of space age polymer disguised as a meat <laughs> stick in your own home. That's yeah, I think my body grim. finally had enough. Although, I mean, sometimes if I'm getting gas, I am a little bit tempted. I uh, I sometimes I want to buy like the artisanal like Slim Jim shit at the grocery like it'll be like Vermont Elk Company or some shit like that and I'm like and I get one I'm like this isn't as good as a Slim Jim I wish I yeah had no a Slim I don't Jim. want it fancy I don't want it fresh I don't want it authentic I want it to feel like chemicals I just don't want to get poisoned yeah Have the faint foamy texture that kind of like <laughs> if you think about it too much is really upsetting that's, yeah that's the shit right there the, the, the big impression like, that if you actually like peruse the ingredients they would not be actual meat listed there yeah, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> this thing is somehow like a flame retardant food stuff cool all right it's a yeah. plastic it. polymer not an actual food <laughs> i uh yeah it, it's weird because i i i also i don't eat some gyms anymore even though i like them but you do in retrospect you're like well maybe meat shouldn't be tangy like, maybe that's weird <laughs> yeah. for me to do that. Uh, Brandon Nix and Corinne Walls are our producers. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer, and our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defector.com, too, while you're at it. And also, please, buy Kyle's book. It's Blood, Sweat, and Chrome. The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road. Fury Road. It's a fantastic book. And I think not only is it a great book and a really entertaining read, but I think in some ways it consecrates Fury Road as one of the greatest movies of all time. Like, I think that was evident, you know, from the second I watched it. But having that history behind it makes it so much richer. Because uh, I did, I watched it right afterward. I was like, I got to watch the fucking movie. Yeah. That's, and, uh, that's the response and it, I'm it, hoping for. It made a difference. Right. It really it really deepened it. And so I, I'd like to thank you for the book. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's one of my favorite interviews I've done so far. Yay! Hey, we did it. I love Defective. Oh, thanks so much, Kyle. All right, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>